Good evening, dummies. Episode 167, Friday, June 11th, 7.40 p.m. It is the weekend. I know you are waiting with bated breath to find out what happened to the Colorado Avalanche last night. And I will put it succinctly. It's baseball season. Go Astros. That's all I've got to say about that. At least we got further than the Blues and the Minnesota Wild. And I will tell you, the Avs need some physical presence on the ice. They are fast, they are quick, but without that little guy called Kadri who decided to go ahead and get suspended for eight games, we couldn't roll against the Golden Knights' second line, and they ultimately killed us. And when you are a one-line team, you don't go far in the playoffs. Ask McDavid, ask uh, Edmonton, ask Toronto. And honestly, Kadri would make the second line so good that three and four would be amazing too. I believe that if Kadri was in, we would have won the Stanley Cup. I think anyone who's honest will tell you that people were surprised that Vegas won that series because we outplayed them for four of those games. And it just didn't go our way. And I guess uh, my voice is cracking. I would just wanted to put the hat on and just move on. But I didn't. Alas, it's over. Long farewell, maybe next year. Welcome to Don't Unfriend Me, folks. It's good to have you here. You are the dummies, as you know. If you've watched one show or you've watched 166 of them, you are a dummy. And it's not an insult. It's a Don't Unfriend Me, and welcome to the show. What are we going to do tonight? Friday night. It's Red Friday. I had some red on earlier, but I took it off. So, sorry. My avalanche hat was red. Blood red. Arterial red. From the mortal wounds that they suffered from the... Okay, we're not going to do it. Here we go. What are we going to do tonight? It's going to be a good show. I always say that. And hopefully it usually is. The show's views are going up every time. It seems people are watching longer. So I think we're getting a nice mix of time and content. And that's a good thing. Columbus didn't sail the ocean blue in 1619. There is a old adage that a, a naughty limerick that I will not recite here about Christopher Columbus, but most assuredly was not 1619. We'll talk a little bit about that. What is the 1619 project? Why is it everywhere? And why is it wrong? We'll talk about that. COVID can suck my dictaphone. And I mean that wholeheartedly. I am fucking sick of COVID. I'm done. I am not insensitive. I'm not saying I don't care about the loved ones you lost and all that stuff. Come on. I'm just fucking sick of the masks. I'm sick of the drama. I'm sick of the mask holes. I'm sick of going into places and having to put on a mask and smell my own breath. I'm done. I don't care anymore. You can drag me out by my feet. We're not doing it anymore. I'm revolting. I'm going to talk about that tonight. And lastly, can we just really peddle smut and porn again? Remember the days when liberals just wanted to put Hustler and Playboy and Penthouse on the Newsstands and Republicans and Christian conservatives were like, how dare you? No, keep it to eight millimeter on back alley porn with dirty back channels of black market porn or still photographs from the 1920s. We can't have that stuff on our newsstands. Remember when the liberals were about free speech? It's interesting how times have changed. Let's go into it tonight. But first... We're going to do what we always do and tell a little joke. And this is from the wonderful, late, great president in our history, Ronald Reagan. 
an American and a Russian were arguing about their two countries. The American said, I can walk into the Oval Office, I can pound the president's desk, and I can say, Mr. President, I don't like the way you're running our country. The Soviet citizen said, I can do that. The American said, you can? And he says, yes, I can go into the Kremlin, to the general secretary's office, I can pound his desk and say, Mr. General Secretary, I don't like the way President Reagan is running his country. from an undisclosed location. Always honest, always direct. So sit back, relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Well, thank you for joining, dummies. I just realized I need to uh, darken the beard and possibly brighten up the picture just a little bit. Wow. It's uh, a little bit dark. There we go. It's the white shirt. It bounces, refracts the light back into the lens, which then the camera and the sensor decides to go ahead and adjust and make it darker. And I don't know what happens. It's just there's ball bearings and flux capacitors built into this camera, and it just decides to go ahead and do whatever it wants. Folks, who am I? I'm Matthew Spear. I am your host of Don't Unfriend Me. Houston Astros are playing tonight. Colorado Avalanche are not. And no, it's not a night off. They are playing golf. As we covered In the first four minutes, and I'm sure, tragically, I will continue to bludgeon my mental faculties and 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 just berate my own self and pour salt and lemon juice into the open wounds that are my disappointment of hockey and why the avalanche buckled like a belt. All right, that's it for tonight. That's it. I'll I'll stop, folks. Where can you find me here? In the insane asylum, in the pity party, pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. Don't unfriend me. By the way, congratulations to the Vegas Golden Knight fans who are listening. I know you've been watching hockey religiously for three years, and most assuredly, you'll hear it here now. You're not going to win the Stanley Cup. You've got to go through the Islanders or Tampa Bay, and that's not going to happen. You may have an easy ride with Montreal, but remember this, young, young pups who are the Vegas Golden Knights, Corey Price can stop some puck and he is a wonderful goaltender and probably the only goaltender that can compete with flurry Vasilevsky, I believe from Tampa Bay is probably the best goaltender in hockey right now, but price is probably third. It should be interesting. What's going to see what's going to happen. All right, that's it. No more hockey. I swear to God, don't turn the channel. Don't leave. You can go down here. Oops here. Uh, Don't unfriendme.com to see me. If you would like, let's do this. We're out of order. So we're going to put that back up. We're going to go Don't Unfriend Me. I'm screwing up tonight. It's been a while. www.donutfriendme.com. You can go there. Please like, share, follow, subscribe, all that type of crap. It really helps if you would do that. And I'm discombobulated. I even started the show in my in my head, and I was walking down and writing this. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to talk about hockey. I'm just going to throw the hat on, and it's going to be I can't. I can't. And I'm sorry. Have you heard of the 1619 Project? It was published by the New York Times in August of 2019. It won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 2020. Interesting enough, another Pulitzer Prize was given out today to the lady who recorded George Floyd's demise. Handing those things out like uh, like nothing, like a Tic Tac. Here you go. Want a breath mint? How about a Pulitzer Prize? 
The thesis is the United States was founded in 1619 when the first slave was brought to North America. Wait a second. It brings up a question that I have. What happened to 1776 to July 4th? What happened to the Declaration of Independence? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Madison, Alexander Hamilton. According to the 1619 Project, the Founding Fathers pushed for all that. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Stuff to protect their slave holdings and their independence from England. That was just a smokescreen, folks. To them, everything that's wrong with America is tied to her original sin of slavery. From segregation to traffic jams. Yes, traffic jams. From the 1619 Project authors, racism is not a part of the American experience. It is the American experience. And I am not here to say that racism isn't real. I'm just here to disprove the 1619 bullshit project. Is this true, though? Let's look at three of the project's major claims. Number one, preserving slavery was the real cause of the American Revolution. If you ask the founders why they no longer wanted to be a British colony, they would have given you a long list of reasons. Taxation without representation, conflicts over deaths from the French and Indian War, and the Stamp Act would be just a few. Probably most important was the burning desire to be free, to chart their own destiny as a sovereign nation. Protecting slavery, slavery was not under threat from the British. In fact, Britain didn't free the slaves in its overseas colonies until 1833, 57 years later after the Declaration of Independence. Yes, the subject of slavery was hotly debated at the Constitutional Convention, but that was after the war was won. Number two, slavery made America rich. Well, slavery made some Americans rich, that's true enough. Eli Yale, for example, made a fortune in the slave trade. He donated money and land for the university that is named after him. But the institution of slavery didn't make America rich. In fact, the slave system badly slowed the economic development of half the country. Because without innovation, you're not going to go ahead and excel. You're not going to move into an industrial-type revolution in the future. Why? Because slave labor, it's free. And if you don't have to go ahead and create machinery or the seed drill or the cotton gin or any of the other modern advancements, even the automobile, the horseless carriage, because why would you need to when you have slaves? As economist Thomas Sowell points out, In 1860, just one year before the Civil War began, the South had only one-sixth as many factories as the North. Almost 90% of the country's skilled, well-paid laborers and professionals were based in the North. Banking, railroads, manufacturing, all were concentrated in the North. The South was an economic backwater. And the cost of abolishing slavery was enormous, not merely in terms of dollars. Lincoln borrowed billions to pay for it, but also in terms of human life. 360,000 Union soldiers died in order to free 4 million slaves. That works out about one soldier in blue for every 10 slaves freed. It's hard to look at that butcher's bill and conclude that the nation turned a profit from slavery. And many things have happened since 1865. In almost the 200 years since the Civil War, the population of the country has grown almost 900%, and our national GDP has increased 12,000%. Slavery did not make America rich. Number three, racism is an unchangeable part of America. This argument is more philosophical than scholarly, 
but it undergrids the entire 1619 project. It's also pernicious because it suggests that the United States is an inherently racist country that can't overcome its flaws. Yet that's exactly what it's done. Today, America is the most successful multiracial country in history, the only white majority country to elect a black president twice and a black vice president. Of course, progress has not always been smooth. There have been terrible setbacks, but to compare American attitudes about race today to America 100 years ago, let alone to 1619, is absurd, if not asinine. Here's a fact that should be better known. Two million black Africans have come to America as legal immigrants from countries like Nigeria. This is in the last 50 years and have become one of the most successful groups in the country. Why would these folks move to what is often called an evil, a racist country? Because unlike many people lucky enough to be born here, they know that America is a land of opportunity for everyone. It's only fair to note that while blacks have her- uh, heroically fought for our rights, often against great odds, we haven't done it alone. It's not just whites fighting this, or blacks, or Hispanics. This is a we fight, and it's every American. There are a vast number of whites who've advanced the cause of racial equality. To cite one of countless examples, the U.S. Senate has passed the Landmark Civil Rights Act in 1964, contained 98 whites and two men of color, and they were Asian. Now you might say, well, there weren't blacks in that time. Well, that's not true. The great black leaders of the past, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King, never lost faith in America's promise that all people are created equal. None of them believed that racism was America's defining characteristic. And it's not like there was only one type of of policy happening on the federal level. This was happening on the states and the cities. And there was black representation, although it was small and it was a minority of minority there were still white people fighting to the day, not just the hundreds of thousands that died in the Civil War, but also elected officials who stood against their constituents sometimes in some states that were absolutely against integration and were for segregation. But America's defining characteristic isn't racism. They're right, it's not. Shortly after the 1619 Project was published, a group of distinguished historians, almost all on the left, wrote a public letter condemning the work. They called it a displacement of historical understanding by ideology. They were right, too. And not right from a political perspective, but right in being correct. We don't get to rewrite history just because history is uncomfortable. Slavery is a mark on the United States of America. There are a lot of things that are a mark on the United States of America. The Ku Klux Klan, Jim Crow laws, internment camps for the Japanese, segregation, unfair housing lines, jail terms for minorities versus whites. These things are not something we're proud of. Even, I think, if you look back in the next few years, you'll see that the Iraq war will gain even more distaste with people as a war that didn't need to be fought, at least the second. America has made mistakes. The blue, the white, and the red on the flag stands for many things, but it's not purity that it's also 
overcomes the justice of the flag and the blood of the veterans who've died for it. All of the marks on the flag are there for a reason. And you don't achieve those things in any given time. You work towards them, and we will make mistakes. But the worst thing you can do in history is there is a saying, what is past is prologue, which basically means if it's happened before, it'll happen again. And the one thing you can do to ensure that that never, ever happens again is to never forget. Whether it be 9-11, whether it be Pearl Harbor, whether it be an economic collapse or COVID-19, it is our job to remember and to pass things on to our children. So when they get in power to make decisions, they remember. But this secondary viewpoint of history is not one that is woke or intelligent or historically accurate. It's essentially a bleached version of our history. It's a black mark on our history. It takes away the things that we have learned. It takes away the lessons of the past and condemns us to repeat them again. 1619, although might make somebody feel better about what happened, it certainly won't impact everyone the same. I can tell you this, when you see pictures of slavery when you see the whip marks on the slaves, the way that they were treated, it creates something palpable and heartfelt in most children who see it. It is a stark reminder. I remember seeing videos of the Holocaust marched into in Germany as the, the, Jewish, uh, the people in Germany who were Jewish were put into these camps and put into the gas chambers. I'll never forget those images. I'll never forget how their bones would protrude and you could see their ribs and they were a shadow of their once former selves. We can sit there and strike that from the record. We can stop teaching it in school. But the one thing I hear from people more often than not is that liberals aren't socialists and socialists is just this big, scary craze. Ask the 100 million people who've died from it. These type of thoughts, the woke generation, white fragility, toxic masculinity, and yes, the 1619 Project, although have very, very different goals in mind, all come from the same Maoism, socialism, woke generation type impact that happened in China, in Russia, in Laos, in Vietnam, in South America. It happens in increments. It begins with censorship. It begins with stopping, to, stopping teaching the things that we need to learn in order to not make the same mistakes again. And when you desensitize Americans to history and replace it with something that is whitewashed or bleached and not by, based on color, but to be disinfected like it is some sort of disease and plague to be kept away, that is the exact opposite. It leads me in my next conversation of COVID that facing this is probably the best course of action. And herd immunity is something that's real. We're going to talk about that tonight. But we can also remember this, that when we immerse ourselves in history, when we take a second to actually listen and learn from the annals of the past, 
will learn something. We may not have an immunity to racism. We may never get rid of it. And in fact, I'm confident we never will. But if enough people remember the past, we will ensure that it does not happen again because we will recognize the signs. It always strikes me as odd as when people, especially Democrats, protect BLM or critical race theory and say, this isn't socialism. I'm wondering where they're getting that information. When you victimize one person and blame them for everyone's problems, this is what happened in Nazis Germany. This is what happened in China. This is why they went into Tibet. When you blame one person for all of your problems, eventually the vitriol and the hatred will be replaced. And what you claim white people have towards minorities will then come back in spades to white people. How do we not see that? How do we not see that with modern day feminism? There are no laws on the books that separate men and women from being equal. There is no pay gap. There's laws against pay gaps. In fact, if we were to actually be sincere, we would look back at some former episodes and find that men are kind of behind the eight ball in a lot of ways. This was never about peeing, standing up, or sitting down. It was simply about power. And that's all this is. I will admit that whites are absolutely still in power and in charge of this nation and this country. And I don't know how long that will take to change. But when you force that change, and you use it through hatred and divisiveness, it will come back in spades against you. We've seen it throughout history. When you victimize a class of people, and you turn the tables on them and do the things that were unjust that they did upon you, you have to go back to the adage of two wrongs don't make a right. I want to make sure that my children understand that our founding fathers were great, knowledgeable, and powerful men. And they were farmers. But they were also pompous. And they were jackasses in a lot of ways. They did many things right for our country, but they left so much to ambiguity. They did the best they could with what they had, and they didn't fight a war to stop slavery. They fought a revolution to stop tyranny. The Civil War is where we fought. The Civil War is where the southern states and the northern states blood red through the fields of our brothers and sisters. Sometimes we have to slow down to speed up. Take the time to ask this one last question before we move on. What will cure the pains of the past? What can anyone possibly do to make anyone whole whose ancestors suffered from slavery? There is nothing. Maybe it starts with an apology. Because no one ever has. And wouldn't that be a refreshing thing for senators, congressmen, mayors, governors, city officials to stand up in a day of reflection and say, this is why slavery was wrong. This is why racism is wrong. And although 40 acres and a mule will not happen, we can certainly start to heal 
by emulating the things that we wanted to instill in this great nation so long ago. And there is nothing in our Constitution about hating one race over another. There is nothing about attrition through censorship. There is nothing about contrition by denial. We have an obligation to teach our youth the truth. And replacing one lie with another has never worked out well in any date or time in history. COVID can suck my big dictaphone. I went in the doctor's office today. It literally was bleached. You could smell the chemicals in the air. Nothing could live in there, hardly a human. Any bacteria is dead. This is the one place that people should go to. And we've been going to doctor's office ever since I can remember, and long before that. The days of the horse and carriage. Hell, even medieval times had people who would actually say that they were doctors or somehow had medicinal practices that could heal people, soothsayers more than anything. But we've been standing in line to see people to help us for a long time, and whether it was to pay taxes or to see a doctor or to go to the local brothel. We've been in some pretty tough situations, whether it was a bubonic plague or Spanish flu or going through AIDS or even the common cold and flus. The doctor's office was one place that you could go into and sit with other people and just get every type of whatever was in there, and it didn't matter. Because everyone knew you were going to get a dose of antibiotics shortly anyway, and whatever you caught, you would just get killed and taken away. But even when you think it's safe to go into a doctor's office, you must wear a mask. And here's the funny thing. You still have to fill out 27 fucking pages of paperwork. Today I went in and I'm done. Here's another thing. Why the fuck do I have to wait on the doctor? Everywhere else I go, how come bureaucracy happens in doctor's offices and the DMV? Why do you make my appointment at 10 o'clock? Tell me to show up at 9.45 and don't see me till 11.30. If I ran my business that way, I would get fucking fired. Maybe instead of teaching the Hippocratic Oath and 17 fucking million pages of books to learn every type of disease in the Latin, you could learn some time fucking management. The last thing I want to do is go sit in an office in a mask not be able to breathe, and wait for your ass to literally have conversations with people. Why don't you just say this? What's wrong with you? I've got the flu. Great. Here's some Theraflu. Get the fuck out of my office. Most of the time that doctors actually spend with patients, they misdiagnose the issue. Most of the time they get behind because they overbook due to cancellations. But they want to see as many people as they can, like herding cattle, and then we have to pay the price. But why do I still have to wear a mask in a doctor's office? Well, we don't want to spread COVID. Fine. That's great. I'll do it. What if I'm vaccinated? Science stops at that door. Listen, it's been over a year since these restrictions began. And we've done nothing to stop this. We're also finding out that the vaccine isn't the end-all, be-all. It isn't our saving grace. There's still people who get the vaccine and then contract COVID. But these restrictions are still across a, a, a vast amount of states. 
Although some of these restrictions were reasonable and temporary, and they were measures designed to keep hospitals from being overwhelmed, others seemed arbitrary and bore little connection to health and safety. At best, they were slightly ridiculous. At worst, they were an exercise of raw government power to control its citizens, and many of them hung around long after they possibly could have been justified by the, uh, the uncertainty that was present at the start of the pandemic. Some of the worst defenders, I've made a list. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer issued a draconian order that not only required most businesses to close, but also forced hardware stores, which were allowed to remain open, to close off the parts of their stores that sold carpet, flooring, furniture, garden supplies, and paint. Disregarded businesses' free speech rights by prohibiting them from advertising or promoting any goods other than groceries, medical supplies, or items that are necessary to maintain the safety, sanitation, and basic operation of residencies. She banned motorboats, jet skis, and other watercraft while allowing the use of kayaks, canoes, and sailboats. Prohibited residents from traveling to a second home or a vacation rental. Vermont Governor Phil Scott announced that no one may gather with anyone from another household, even outdoors. He justified the ban because you don't know what your neighbor has done. He later amended the order to allow socially distanced walks with one person. Villages in New York banned the use of leaf blowers of Sleepy Hollow because of the COVID pandemic blowing dust into the air creates a hazmat situation. The village manager expressed concern that the use of leaf blowers may be contributing to the spread of the virus, although there is no scientific proof of this. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker imposed a no-exceptions mask mandate requiring everyone age 5 and older to wear masks in public, even when outdoors and socially distanced, or presumably alone. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetta banned all travel other than for essential activities including travel on foot, bicycle, scooter, motorcycle, automobile, or public transit. In other words, no unnecessary walking. The mayor of Louisville, Kentucky banned church services for Easter. Fortunately, a federal judge put a stop to the ban, writing that the mayor's order was something this court never expected to see outside the pages of a dystopian novel, or perhaps the pages of The Onion, end quote. But it wasn't just the measures themselves that were troublesome. The enforcement of these new laws also were overzealous and absurd. Police in Encinitas, California, cited 22 people for watching the sunset and having picnics near the beach. Those fuckers. Violations carried fines of up to $1,000 and up to six months in jail. A 19-year-old woman in Pennsylvania was stopped by police and given a $200 ticket when she went for a drive, alone, just to get out of the house. In California, police chased down the arrested paddleboarders and surfers who went out in the ocean, socially distanced from anyone except a few sea lions and maybe a dolphin or two. A man in Brighton, Colorado was arrested for playing catch with his six-year-old daughter on a near-empty softball field. Separation of powers matters. In each case, COVID restrictions were imposed by executive branch officials, governors, mayors, sheriffs, and law enforcement, relying on broad grants of power delegated by legislatures. The legislatures did not write or vote on the restrictions themselves. Instead, 
It was left to the officials who are responsible for enforcing the restrictions to decide what is banned and what is allowed. That approach is contrary to the separation of powers that underlies the American system of government. Under our system, power is supposed to be divided among different branches that check and balance each other. For the protection of our rights and freedoms, laws are supposed to be enacted by the legislative branch. The executive branch is supposed to enforce the laws, not make them. It is that constitutional structure that helps protect our liberty and freedoms. As Justice Anton Scalia said, if you think a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. He continued, every president for life has a Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean, it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests, and anyone who's caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. That's great. Of course, they were just words on paper, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution. He has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which our framers debated, our constitution, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787, they didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought. That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee, and they were right. So the real key to the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government and the separation of powers. Unfortunately, the COVID pandemic has once again shown that when government officials are allowed to reach beyond their proper role, it is the people and their freedoms that suffer. This authority needs to be restored to the balance of power, and it's guaranteed in our Constitution. And I'm done. It's gone way too far. This is no longer about the left or the right, Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, even life or death. And it isn't about our elected officials' reactions. This is about fear. And what is it about this illness that has triggered this over-the-top, irrational, baseless reaction and paranoid concern for the health and safety of each of us? I can almost understand the initial response, though. I'm not sure it was warranted. It was a new virus. We didn't have a lot of information. It wasn't necessarily reliable, accurate, responsible. So perhaps erring on the side of caution was warranted. I get it. But come the fuck on. We are now almost a year and a half in from the first reported case. Depending on who and what source you believe, of course. And every statistic we have now reasonably tells us this is less dangerous than a dozen diseases that have been around for years. Exactly what are we so afraid of? Face it, we are all going to die. We weren't designed to live forever. Life has always had a risk. And while it may be prudent to try and mitigate that risk to whatever extent each of us feel necessary, at some point the mitigation begins to usurp the joy of life, doesn't it? A lot of successful mitigation examples around motorcycle helmets, helmets for youth sports, vaccinations, better eating habits, no smoking, and many others. So what made this risk different? Look around you at the nonsense we have allowed, not the politicians, 
not the political parties or media. But look at what has been said that we must do. Wear a cloth mask with a filter, no filter, to protect others while staying six feet apart. Check in at your doctor, then wait in your car for the nurse to text or call you or to come into the exam room where you're allowed to take off your mask. Wear a mask to enter and exit a restaurant and take it off when you're seated. How does that work? How about spending trillions of dollars in aid for people we put out of work by forcing these closings to begin with? And even more on paying the businesses we forced to close so they could stay in business. Conflicting information abounds. So-called experts can never agree on testing or masking needs. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you wear two masks, sometimes you don't. The vaccine works. No, it doesn't work. You still have to social distance. No, you don't. Take it off. It's exhausting. How about we open schools part-time? Because COVID-19 apparently doesn't infect on a full-time basis. Just between the hours of 8 and 12, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. How about we allow children to participate in youth sports, yet don't allow families to watch the games? This is it for me. COVID-19 has become a terrible sham. If it wasn't already, I have no idea if it was intentional, misguided, research, politically motivated, or an alien invasion, and I don't fucking care. When 99% of the people who have contracted the disease recover and less than 0.3% die, it is time to say enough is enough and resume our lives. COVID-19 is just one more risk in our lives. Perhaps we could spend those trillions on curing hunger, homelessness, better care for veterans, treating drug addiction, rebuilding crumbling neighborhoods, repair thousands of miles of infrastructure, or a myriad of other issues that we have. For me, I will no longer live in fear. If I get sick, I'll stay home. I'll follow the doctor's orders and get over it or not. It is and always has been a choice until now. Think about that. How many diseases have naturally not gone away? Still remnants of the Spanish flu are here with us every single year and do devastation to everybody. These diseases evolve. As herd immunity continues, there will be a form of COVID with us forever. And we will never be free of it because it is a virus. It'll just change forms and become less lethal than it is now, which it hardly is at all, on a grand enough scale. It's time for our nation, state, county, town to get out of COVID-19 and stop the business of COVID-19 and get on with our lives. If you look at Vietnam, you look at companies like Grumman, Huey, Bell, defense contractors, hundreds of billions of dollars for that war. That war stabilized our economy. It was an infusion of money, just like World War II. And if you want to know why we fought Vietnam, it most assuredly was for money. We knew the Cold War was around the corner. We knew that we were going to assert power from Russia, that they were funding the Vietnamese, and so was China. These were communist countries. We understood the threat of Cuba. We understood Korea. We understood Laos. We understood that that area was absolutely essential for Chinese and Russian territory. But more importantly, the money that would be created from these defense contracts. Who's making money off COVID? What's happening to Johnson & Johnson? How's Amazon doing? How's Grubhub doing? 
How are the airlines doing? Where's the money coming from? Who's getting it? These questions need to be asked. Because it certainly wasn't created to make money, whether you think it was in a wet market or you think it was in a Wuhan lab and created. The point is, is that it's here. And there are people who have made billions of dollars off COVID-19. Ask FedEx how much money they've made. There are a lot of things we need to look at. There are a lot of players in this game. But I'm done playing it. I am no longer wearing a mask. I'm no longer going to be quiet and have people shame me into doing it. If you don't want my business, fine. I will go somewhere else. But it's time for us to take our rights back. Because what happens when the next one comes? This overreaction is going to destroy our country. We are now $33 trillion in debt, and it's climbing every second, every minute, every hour of every day. And it's never, ever going to go down. We must get back to work. We must educate our children. And we must stop arguing amongst each ourselves and find the course of action that will lead America into the future years coming. Because if we keep reacting this way, if we keep overreacting and we allow something as small and as indifferent on the scale, and I know you don't like to hear it, as the common cold and the flu, we're never going to come back. We have reached a point of no return. We have moved from courageous generations that build bridges and fought world wars and wrote masses and amazing pieces of literature and art and music to a bunch of cowardly, sniveling basement dwellers who are afraid of their own shower, shadow and shower for some of them. The word boo. Can we just peddle smut again? When most people think of intolerance, they imagine a racist taunting a black person, or they think of a white supremacist who killed a demonstrator in Charlottesville, Virginia. It seldom occurs to them that intolerance comes in all political shapes and sizes. A protester storming a stage and refusing to let somebody speak is intolerant. So too are campus speech codes that restrict freedom of expression. A city official threatening to fine a pastor for declining to marry a gay couple is every bit as intolerant as a right-winger wanting to punish gays with sodomy laws. There is a word that describes this mentality. It is illiberal. For centuries, we have associated the word liberal with open-mindedness. Liberals were people who were supposed to be tolerant and fair and who wanted to give all sides a hearing. Free speech was their decree. They cared about everyone, not just their own kind. By contrast, illiberal people were hard-headed in their opinions and judgmental about others' behaviors and hoping to control what other people thought and said and to cut off the debate. In extreme cases, they would even use violence to maintain political power and exclude certain kinds of people from having a say in their government. Sadly, the kind of liberalism we used to know is fast disappearing from America. While the intolerance of the far right is well known, its manifestations on the far left are less known and often fully acknowledged, not fully acknowledged. All too often, people who call themselves progressive liberals are at the forefront of movements to shut down debates on college campuses and to restrict freedom of speech. They are e excuse me, eager to cut corners 
bend the Constitution, make up laws through questionable court rulings, and generally abuse the rules and the Constitution in order to get their way. They establish zero-tolerance regimes in schools where young boys are suspended for nibbling breakfast pastries into a shape of a gun. They are supposedly great haters of bigotry, but sometimes speak of Christians in the most bigoted manner imaginably, as if Christians were no better than fascists. Don't even get me started what they say about the Jews. American liberals are, in short, becoming increasingly illiberal. They are surrendering to the temptations of the closed mind. We must be careful about what this means. There are hard, sometimes very hard, and soft forms of illiberalism that exist regardless of their ideological left or right variations. The hard forms are totalitarian or authoritarian. They rely on the threat of force, in some measure, to maintain power, and they are invariably anti-democratic and anti-liberal. Think of communism, fascism, and all the various hybrids of authoritarian regime, from Putin's Russia to Islamist states that support terrorism. Soft forms of illiberalism, on the other hand, are not totalitarian or violent. Outwardly, they may observe the limits constitutional democracies place on the arbitrary use of power, but there is a suspicion that liberal democracies are not fully legitimate. On the other side of the political spectrum, leftists often judge liberal democracies as economically and socially unjust because they are capitalist. Since most liberal democracies still allow conservatives to have a voice in the democratic process, leftists find them wanting, and in some cases condemn them outright as inherently oppressive of racial and sexual minorities, for example, precisely because conservatives still have a voice. Hard forms of illiberalism certainly exist in America today. On the right, they are manifest in the form of hardcore racists and white supremacists, and on the left as communists, anarchists, or any leftist radical who openly threatens with violence. But soft illiberalism is present as well, and in America today, it is pervasive. Historically, a progressive liberal was someone who imbibed the intellectual nectars of both progressivism and classical liberalism. The progressive tradition is easily recognizable. It is the legacy of prominent progressives from the turn of the 20th century, such as Herbert Crowley, John Dewey, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and others. The classical liberal tradition is less well-known, and as a result, our understanding of it is murkier. Classical liberalism is a set of ideas about individual liberty and constitutional government inherited from the moderate Enlightenment. In America, those ideas influenced by the revolution and the founding of the republic. In Europe, they were taken up in the 19th century by such liberals as Benjamin Constant, David Ricardo, Alexis de Tocqueville, Francois Guzat, and John Stuart Mill. Although originally swimming in the same intellectual stream, American progressives and classical liberals started parting company in the late 19th century. Progressives initially clung to freedom of expression and the right to dissent of the original liberalism, but under the influence of socialism and social democracy, they gradually moved leftward. Today, they largely hold classic liberalism, especially as manifested in small government, conservatism, and libertarianism in contempt. Thus, what we call a liberal today is not historically a liberal at all, but a progressive social democrat, someone who clings to the old liberal notion of individual liberty when it is convenient, as in supporting abortion or decreeing the national security state. 
but who more often finds individual liberties and freedom of conscience to be barriers to building the progressive welfare state. To untangible this confusing, oh, excuse me, to untangle this confusing web of intellectual history, we need a more accurate historical rendering of what progressive liberals actually are. If they are not really liberals, then what are they? If we explore this more in depth, they are postmodern leftists. A postmodernist is someone who believes that ethics are completely and utterly relative and that human knowledge is, quite simply, whatever the individual, society, or political powers say it is. When mixed with radical egalitarianism, postmodernism produces the agenda of the radical culture left, namely sexual and identity politics, and radical multiculturalism. These causes have largely taken over the progressive liberal agenda and given the Democratic Party most of its energy and ideas over the last 50 years. The illiberal values inherent in these causes have been imported from neo-Marxism, radical feminism, critical race theory, sexual revolutionary politics, and other theories and movements imbued with the postmodern critique. Combined with the dreams of the old social democratic socialist left of either dismantling or radically containing capitalism, the culture of the postmodern left today is very potent force in politics. The thing I've said more often than not is I don't have a problem with Democrats or liberals. I have a problem with socialists and progressives. There is this utter denial And I believe people when they say, I am not a socialist. I am not a progressive. I believe you. But your party is, and it has become that. It's not that the right hates liberalism. It's not that the right hates Democrats. The right cannot stand socialism because it is the antithesis of everything we believe in. The Constitution, freedom, capitalism, the right of choice, small government, all of these things are the antithesis of socialist beliefs. The power of the people to make the decision that's right for them, not the power of the state, not the power of the federal government. This is the problem. So now the adage is is that the right is the intolerant right, which is the biggest fallacy. There are recent polls that have been studied that who cares more about their fellow man, Republicans or Democrats? The polls are absolutely one-sided. Over 71% of Americans say that Christians or Republicans or their neighbor who believe in these type of things are some of the best neighbors they've ever had. However, they hate their politics. It's amazing that Democrats are fleeing the, the left and right coast, the left coast, so to speak moving into Texas, moving into Alabama, moving into Idaho, and taking the politics that they fled from those states and then voting the same in the state that they fled to for sanctuary. I would ask people to truly look at the platform of your party. $15 an hour minimum wage, raising of tax and spend, taxing the middle class, universal health care, College debt forgiveness, alienating Israel, getting into relationships with Iran and China. What the hell? Is this a reflection of anything that your party looked like under Kennedy or Bill Clinton? And the answer is no. 
Hillary Clinton would be a breath of fresh air because at least she was a war hawk and a moderate progressive. Joe Biden used to be. This new party, I don't even know what the hell they are. It reminds me in 2014 with a Tea Party. I have no idea who the hell those people were. They certainly weren't Republicans and conservatives. And they were a form of fascists. And we have seen the new form of socialism. And it is a donkey. And it is a jackass of epic proportions. Folks, that's it for my show tonight. Thank you for spending some time. It was a solemn show, very relaxed. I wasn't very angry. I think I'm still thinking about the abs and their loss, but I'll get over it someday. Give me a year. Actually, training camp is like 62 days away, which is insane. Folks, Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press 1, the Veteran Crisis Hotline. 22 veterans commit suicide a day. It is way too many. Traumatic brain injury, PTS, stress, anxiety, depression are all real. Our veterans suffer from these things. When they come home, they need our help. It starts with conversation. Please reach out to a veteran, especially on Red Friday today. Ask a veteran if they need help. If you can't talk to them, sometimes that's hard. Veterans have a hard time talking to non-veterans. You can reach out to me. I'll make the phone call with you. I have no problem doing that. If I have to fly out, I will. Whatever it takes to help a vet. And if that all does not work, you can go to the Veteran Crisis Line on my website, www.donunfriendly.com. Click on the VCL link. You'll be connected to a Skype operator. And VCL will not turn away civilians. So if you are suffering as well as a civilian, make that phone call. They will help you. Folks, thank you for stopping by. Please like, share, follow, and subscribe. I would love it if you would. I will see you Monday for 168. Thank you for stopping by. Have an amazing weekend. Stay safe and take off that fucking mask.